Hi, I'm Susanna Kalchich and you're listening to Life in Practice podcast. I'm curious about the big questions in life and how we can experience more meaning and fulfillment every day. Join me as my guests share their challenges, successes and what it means to put our purpose, our values and our lives in practice. Hello and welcome to Life in Practice podcast. This is your host, uh, Susanna. And today I have Ben Starling with me. Ben is a writer, artist, environmentalist with a special interest in the oceans. So Ben, with that, where did this interest with the, with the oceans and water begin with? I think I was born with it. I remember from a very, very early age when my mother put me on her knee and read The Old Man and the Sea by Hemingway, and it must have been quite soon after the book actually came out. And if you don't know the book, it's about an old man in Cuba who goes out in a little canoe all on his own, and he's been rather ostracized by his society but he has huge wisdom, which he's accumulated for decades. And he hooks the largest marlin, which is a bit like a swordfish, the fish with a spear coming out of the front of its head. And it tows him all around the ocean for several hours, days even. And I just remember that fired something in me, which I have always had. I've always been fascinated by the ocean, by water in general, lakes, rivers, and I've fished a lot until a while ago, dived, snorkeled, just love the water. Mm. What's your star sign? Guess. <laughs> uh, well, you're either a Pisces or a Cancer, I, I think. I am a Pisces, You're yes. a Pisces, of I course Pisces. you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a Pisces as well. Oh, uh, yeah. we may be twins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is funny. Uh, do you believe in star signs? a r- random question. No. Okay. <laughs> Although I am, um, I do find it interesting that I am a water sign and I yeah. love the water. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that was a bit of a random <laughs> diversion. Um, so even though you're so interested in the oceans and water, but you've chosen the path of becoming a writer and an artist. So how did that come about? I've done many things in my life. I went to university, I went to business school. One side of my family have been in finance, so they were bankers and stockbrokers, and I decided to try that out. And so I spent a few years in venture capital and in banking, which really wasn't for me. I found it very interesting in a number of ways, but it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And about 20 years ago, I had a change of direction. And I started doing some product design, which was creative, because I love creative things. And I started writing, and I'd always been interested in art, right from the earliest age, back to when my mother read me The Old Man and the Sea. I was drawing pictures of giant squid fighting with sperm whales in the depths of the ocean. And... What actually happened was about 15 years ago, I I wrote a book and my agent said to me at the time, it'd be really interesting to get this illustrated. So we saw the work of a number of illustrators and I didn't really like it, not because it wasn't good, but because 
what an illustrator does is they read the book and then they draw the scenes of the book and they sort of give the story away. And I, in one of the rashest remarks of my life, said to my agent, oh, why don't I give this a go? Having not, not picked up a pencil or a bit of paint since I was about 15. And it took years, but I kept going and I developed a huge love for art. And the sort of art I do, a lot of it is themed around the ocean or, or the environment and interesting creatures. Sometimes I invent things, sometimes they're real. But um, it's one of my my loves is art. Mm. Um, where do you think this um, inspiration comes from or this uh, this uh, desire to be creative in this way? Did it uh, did it something that started in your childhood? Like what was that like or um, this empathy that you have for the environment? Well, can you have empathy for the environment, but for um, animals and uh, for sea creatures? I, I suppose you're probably born with it. I mean, we, we're all born with DNA, which points us towards certain ways of behaving later in life and certain things which interest us and we may or may not be better at or worse at. And I just seem to have been pre-programmed from the earliest age. And I remember whenever I was given the choice, do you want to go to the beach or walk up a hill? I would always go to the beach do you want to go walk by a river or do something else? I'd go to the river. So I have felt drawn very strongly by it. And I think one of the things about being a writer or an artist is you want to try and capture something about that world. And photographers do it with a camera. I would do it either by writing about it or by drawing or occasionally painting, but normally I draw because I sort of feel if I recreate it, I've captured it. And maybe it's sort of egotistical to want to capture something, but I feel closer to it by having reproduced it on a piece of paper. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, where do you think um, art and creativity comes from? Um, because you talked about you're born or you have a certain DNA. Do you think it's a skill that can be learned, uh, that can be taught? Or do you think creativity, because I mean, I've heard um, from some people when they talk about creativity, they say it's you have to get into the zone and it's about connecting to whether you want to call it God, the universe, the collective consciousness, but you, you download this inspiration. Mm. So when you're truly creating, it's not actually it's not actually you that's creating it. It's It's something that you... Yeah, a download is a very um, modern computer-type yes, yes. term, but something I that understand, you're used as a vessel. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I mm. think it's a combination of things because sometimes I do a picture and the creative juices are not flowing, and it's an incredible struggle. And I may have to go back to square one several times before I complete the picture, Sometimes those pictures are turn out well and I'm happy with them. But occasionally you just sit down and an idea is already waiting and you, you get going and it all runs incredibly smoothly. But either can be a successful picture. I think, I, I have friends who I talk to about this who, who say they don't have one creative cell in their bodies and they are absolutely amazed I don't really understand what they're saying, but then I can't dance. 
and no no one could teach me to dance. I have absolutely no sense of rhythm, and I look like a complete idiot on the dance floor. So I could say to them, and they aren't say a natural dancer like my ex-wife, and I just say no, I just don't get where you how you do this. It makes no sense. So I can understand that quandary. For me, creativity comes quite naturally, and I remember once I did a. So it wasn't a job interview, but it was a sort of aptitude test to see what sort of job you should get. And I was very average on a lot of things like sort of um, leadership and admin and this and that. But actually on the creativity thing, I was in the sort of 0.25%, you know, quartile, whatever it is, right at the top of the scale. And um, I've always remembered that. And I, I do like creating things. I've created products. I cre- I'm a thinking creative. I, I think out different ways of doing things or I do pictures, but I'm always looking at the way things are and questioning whether they have to be done that way. Could they be done a different way? Mm. And do you have any uh, practices that you do uh, to help you to get into that creative flow? Not really. If I'm very stressed and tired, I won't be feeling creative. So in order to be creative, I do have to slow down and have a little bit of time off. You know, not days, but maybe hours. I I keep my brain active in a number of different ways, which may or may not be part of the same thing. But I find because my art is very complicated, um, I have to think very, very hard while I'm doing it. And if I'm tired, I can't do it. So I think there are a number of things going on if I'm feeling under pressure or stress or I'm just not in the mood. I can't force it. But otherwise, I I don't talk in terms of the muse that some people think, talk about. But I sit down and I just let everything go very still and very quiet. And I look at a large blank piece of paper and I might look at it for maybe not hours, but probably many, many minutes before I put the first line on it in pencil, which is almost certainly removed, as is the second, third, and fourth, and then slowly build something up. And it normally ends up... I don't know what I'm how, what it's going to look like when I start. Uh, and when we get to the end, I'm often astonished if I ever get to the end. Sometimes I can never decide when they're finished. Mm, so it sounds like to me a bit um, that you have a very um, intuitive approach to it. So you kind of wait for the feeling? I think that's very fair, but occasionally I see something which inspires me. So Mm. I might say that I, for example, want to do a picture of dolphins. Mm. I will go onto Google and I uh, I will Google a whole load of pictures of dolphins and I'll look at dozens and then one will spark an idea and then I'll sort of lodge that in the back of my mind and then I might be looking at coral reefs and I'll look at dozens and then I can suddenly picture an end result in which I put the dolphin here, the coral reef there, and the waves with the sunlight coming through them are at this angle. That's often the way the process actually comes through. And I come up with something which is unique, but I I have quite often borrowed the basic shape of something from a, another source. Mm. And is the creative process for writing um, the same for you, or do you take, have a different... Uh, I think writing is about 58,000 times more difficult Mm. because the thing about art is you do it, you finish it, people either like it or they don't like it, and that's the end of the story. In writing, you have to have an editor, 
and you probably have several editors and then you have a publisher as well with their opinion and early on I didn't use editors and I wrote my own stuff and I got mixed reviews people occasionally absolutely hated what I wrote uh, which is very depressing of course and then the next person comes along and says oh my god this is the most unbelievable thing I've ever read so I have no feel for whether my earlier work was any good at all or whether it was complete nonsense. But later on, as I started using editors, which can be utterly, utterly soul-destroying, and the last editor who I worked with is brilliant and dragged everything out of me, kicking and screaming, and we had long disagreements and arguments. But at the end of the day, for all the pain, which was colossal, I think the end product was it, it was worth it. Mm. Yeah, um, I want to just comment on the the pain of uh, writing. I mean, I haven't written anything <laughs> like on your kind of level, but if I'm uh, writing like a blog or um, or a speech like mm. for Toastmasters, like for me, I get all these random ideas, and it's like, right, how can I make this? coherent so that it makes sense yes and i i mean and that's for something that's quite short but how on earth do you start to piece together your ideas when you're writing a um, novel i think one of the greatest disciplines is to use uh, something like the hero's journey mm. <clears throat> which is a well-recognized structure for any story and you cannot go wrong so once one is working within the framework of the hero's journey, you've got a very, very solid base. And then within it, you can have fun, play around. But if you're going to stray a huge distance away from something like the hero's journey, what will happen is your reader will will be confused or feel they've been let down or cheated even because the story is so much a part of our of us now and it's been going on for thousands of years that we all are pre-programmed to anticipate a certain type of story whether we read a book or we go to the cinema and if key elements of that are not in place you probably will not enjoy it and you'll feel uncomfortable and and you won't come away feeling terribly happy about it and so my starting point now it wasn't always this in, intuitively, my first works tended to quite closely follow The Hero's Journey, but the last book I wrote follows it very closely and I think is better for it. Mm. Yeah, which brings me nice. Actually, I, I want to talk about um, your book, which I read, which I've got here, um, Something in the Water. Um, tell me, Ben, what is in the water? <laughs> I think there's a great deal in the water. I think it depends on the on the nature of the question. But mm. in terms of the water I was writing about there, which is the oceans, the message which it, which I've put in the book is that everything is interconnected, and if we kill the oceans, we all die. But many years ago, I was on holiday in the South Pacific, and I was talking to an islander there. And he was describing to me his vision of life and death and the soul, how the soul works. And I always remembered that vision and I always loved it. And it was about the, where souls go when people die and how they accumulate together into a ball of energy. So I've incorporated that idea in this book. We are 
is it 70, 80% water, human beings? I know it's a huge amount. Mm. Uh, I think that water is very important. I was at school with a chap who was a lunatic. And by lunatic, he actually, whenever there was a full moon, he went mad and he had to be sedated. And this, we won't, no names at this stage, <laughs> but I spoke to someone years ago later about it who said that probably what was happening is being a full moon when you get bigger tides in the ocean because the moon's, the gravitational effect is magnified, was probably pulling the water in his body and in his brain toward it which made him behave differently. Now, I have no idea w whether that was a plausible explanation, but I think, yes, water is very, very important, and without it, we die very quickly. 70% of the planet is, is water. Mm, absolutely. I think what I really, um, really enjoyed in the book, um, so when you talk about how everything is connected and what i um what i thought was really well done is your um writing style um how you planted seeds very mm. early on in the story and how they um intertwined they were just like you know you got little clues here and there and then eventually towards the end you're like oh that's what that was oh that makes sense oh yeah oh and that was tied together with this so to me it's like that whole concept was so well um uh, portrayed with how you told that story it just felt like yeah that everything is connected we are connected to each other in so many small ways and ways in which we which we can't even we can't even imagine mm, absolutely and i must say i don't give myself entire credit for seeding interesting things which came out later because although i love doing that and it's i find it a lot of fun and very interesting i have to thank bill gates for that microsoft <laughs> word because I cannot imagine how you could actually think that far ahead and be so sophisticated in it a hundred years ago when you were writing on manuscripts and trying to plan ahead because every single thing which is seeded in that novel probably moved around a couple of times and you know, more was added to it or others were taken out. So with the beauty of the word processor, you can keep changing and finding things and going back. How they did it with a old quill pen and a bit of parchment is completely beyond me. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I also want to ask you about, you chose the, the lead. Like, what was the inspiration behind the lead character? Because it's a very strong uh, female lead, mm. which is not as, as common, <coughs> really. So I've always been aware of the fact that Hollywood is always led by men. And I always found that really rather silly and rather tedious. I mean, the women, you know, the the big fight scene or the baddies chasing them with a gun and it's always the woman who falls over and the man runs, runs back and picks her up and they go on and then it's the man who beats up the baddie. I found that find that incredibly irritating. So the story I wrote, I, I, I had read a book with a, by another male author with a female lead fairly recently and I thought, well, if I do write another book, I want to write a book with a very strong woman, 
she has to be a human being. She can't be a superwoman. So she she has flaws. She has her character develops throughout the story, but she is her own boss. She determines her destiny. And the men around her, they're not superior or inferior. They're all at the same level. And one of the ideas of story writing and in the hero's journey is, is called uh, assembling or collecting allies. And the roles of the other people, some, some of whom are men, some of whom are women in the book, are to really patch up the areas she's less good at. But that's life. None of us are good at everything. And so uh, I put together a woman with the help of a female editor who I'm, I'm very happy with. I'd marry her in a heartbeat. Yeah, because I was going to say some of the parts which I read, I was like, wow, Ben really understands women. <laughs> like, this is this is good. Uh, well, uh, there are a couple of bits in it in which my editor, female editor, said yeah. to me, wow, how did you know that, uh, you know, two women having a private conversation together in this situation about that would talk like that? And I said, because we're all human beings. Actually, men are no different. They They may have more barriers. They may be more guarded. But... It seemed perfectly natural to me that they would. But on other occasions, she said to me, a woman would never do that in that situation. And then I would, you know, listen to her and think about it and, and usually change it. And mm. um, what would be your uh, dream for the book? Well, I would love the book to be made into a film because when I when we wrote it, my editor and I worked on it, we tried to make it very cinematographic. So every scene would look, in our opinion, fantastic. So the book opens in an enormous uh, ballroom in a famous hotel in New York. So that's a huge, big, exciting scene. But a lot of it is filmed in the beautiful South Pacific, and there are ocean scenes and sunsets and tropical paradise. And the whole thing is very visual. At the next level, it's it has three plots which intertwine, and they seem to be going off in different directions. And I think this is back to what you were saying earlier about seeding. They seem to be independent of each other, but they all are critical, and they all come together at the end, and everything makes sense when you get to the end of the book. But I, I would love to see it as a, as a film. The, the problem is films they chop out an awful lot of the novel and I, i've written the screenplay for it and it, it was really soul destroying thinking that bit's got to go that bit's got to go we've got to just keep this on the straight and narrow yeah because i mean quite a lot of people say that they prefer the book to the film a lot yes. of times because i think when you read a book you can use your own uh, your own imagination like what the characters look like or you, uh, you see it through your own lens rather than through the lens of a, a director or a producer. So I, but at the same time, it is also really nice to just watch a movie and get lost in that world. I, I would hope that people watch the film and really, really enjoy it and then go and buy the book and then see that there's a whole new world because at the end of the day, the film will only ever be maybe a third of the book. Mm. It, it will be one main plot line with a couple of tiny little elements, whereas the book is three big plot lines. But that would be a seven-hour film. So that yeah. unfortunately is unlikely to happen. Yeah, and so obviously a film is a mass um, medium which can have an impact on... on a lot of people, and what kind of impact would you want uh, this story to have on viewers? 
Well, before we come to the story, I would like the film world to be making more films with strong f- women as leads. So that, that was one objective, objective of the book. The, the second one is I want people to start thinking about the oceans differently, about the planet differently, about how everything is interconnected. I wrote the book, I, I think I published it about four years ago, and then no one was talking about the plastic in the oceans. I touch on that in the book. It's not a main theme. But since then, awareness has increased incredibly, which is a very good thing. And I think one of the ways in which you get people to think differently and maybe change the way they behave is benignly by sending them to a nice film, not bashing them over the head with a demonstration or environmentalists on television shouting about this or shouting about that. I know the film Avatar was considered a very powerful environmental film because it was a very enjoyable film. And then people go away and they start thinking, how does that apply to this planet? How does it apply to their lives? So I would love people to read it and really enjoy it as a story because it's not a preachy book at all. That's not what I was trying to do. No, it's not at all, yeah. I, I was trying to wrap an adventure around a love story with an environmental message and... When they've thought about the love story and they've enjoyed the adventure, I hope that some seeds have been sown, which will make them think and maybe act differently down the road. Mm, Yeah, that is actually a really good point, because when we learn about these um, topics through a story, I think it can be much easier to influence someone because they can put themselves in that story. They can they can uh, relate to the characters. They can connect it's more of an um, you 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 appeal to the readers or the viewers emotions a lot more mm. whereas yeah I do understand that if someone's just preaching to you it can some people can really um, just shut down and absolutely and close off however on on one side as well some people do need a cold slap in the face to wake them up. Mm. Mm. um so yeah i think with, with I think, a f- dead fish yeah i think both things are really important i think this the power of storytelling is a, is still a very useful vehicle for getting messages across and back to storytelling in culture it always has been or it traditionally was the way in which we conveyed critical information uh passed on knowledge through generations so that society could survive and i don't think it's ever lost that role I think when you slap people in the face with the truth, they tend to fight back and more barriers go up. But I'm very conscious of how things do change. Decades ago, drinking and driving was totally unacceptable. It's totally acceptable. People did it. Now, I don't... Very few people do it. Ditto cigarette smoking, for example. And I think now the use of plastic has come through in the same way so it seems to be you there's this pressure cooker which builds up and up and up and then a series of events or maybe one event pushes us over the the edge and then suddenly awareness changes and people start changing their behavior not everyone of course there will be people who will refuse to change forever but it's about numbers and getting enough people to actually make a difference yeah and i think what we um spoke about um before it's sometimes it's not about um like having to convince people to your way of seeing things or but it's more about uh connecting with people who already 
uh, believe what you believe mm. and that mm. way it's much easier to spread that message i think it you're has right more power as well yes and, w- and when i was marketing the book one of the media mediums i used was facebook and so i joined all the ocean related charities the whales the dolphins the pollution and then marketed the book through them because you are preaching to the converted and then one hopes they will then spread the word to their friends and you draw in more people there will always be people who are resistant mm-hmm. and they're uh, probably at the end of the day there's nothing we can do about that but I, I, one of the ways I express my love of the oceans or, or water was by being a fisherman, a sport fisherman, not a commercial fisherman. And I fished all over the world. And I've caught most species of fish and some very big fish. But about 20 years ago, I just stopped completely. And because it, uh, finally, there were all these voices in the back of my head and people saying, oh, fish feel, feel pain. No, they don't. No, they don't mind if I catch them. Oh, they feel pain. And for me, although it was one of my great joys, and it was, again, a sort of way of expressing my love of the oceans was by holding a fish from the oceans, which I'd caught, which normally went back, but sometimes I ate them. I don't do that anymore. And I doubt I ever will. I mean, it's conceivable I might desperately need food on some occasion, but I I don't do it for fun anymore. So even with me, I can see that one can change. Mm, yeah well we all um i guess when we see the um error of our ways Mm. um well one hopes that uh, one will have the um the inclination to change not 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 um many people do i think um some people have the attitude well we're all gonna die anyway so what's the point like you might as well Mm. enjoy life but um i really love i think it's the tagline from the film uh gladiator and it says what we do now echoes in eternity i think that's so powerful and it goes to your point about how everything is connected it's like what you do has uh what is it called the um butterfly effect yes that's right like what you do to yourself or to or if you do something to someone else it will eventually come back to you in some form Mm. Uh, some things probably do fizzle out before they go any further but we don't know and often one one of the subjects i explored in that book in some not huge depth was the idea of the synchronicity that things are connected uh, Jung, who, whose theory it was, talks about an a-causal connecting principle, something which isn't logical. So in causality, if I push the book, it will move over there. That's causality. But synchronicity is things which are connected in ways which science can't explain. And if you look out for them, I I see them quite often. And I go through phases in my life when I'm bombarded with them about twice a year for about two-week periods. I always think something amazing is going to happen in the middle of these periods, but they don't. They just come and they go and they come and they go. But they do demonstrate things. And even the conversation we had earlier before Mm. this interview, there was an example of something which came up then. So I think if you look for them, they're there. Mm. That's interesting, yeah. I just, it just, uh, it makes us realize 
uh, how much we actually know, <laughs> really. Or don't but know. But yeah, mm. yeah, that yeah. Sorry, that that's actually what I meant. How mm. much we how much we don't know. But then on one hand, I feel we also we do kind of know all these things, kind of in a deep way. We can feel right. them, mm. but we don't know how to express it in in words, maybe, or we don't have a scientific language yet to explain it. Mm. So and science may never explain it, of course. I don't know. I mean, I I just think for things that people think, oh, this is a um, miracle or this is like something, you know, really, really special. For me, I just see it as, okay, um, we just don't have a scientific language to explain mm. that. So that's why it seems really mysterious to us. Yes. I, th I think there are so many ways we're subtly connected. And when you look for them, uh, you you do find them not always but you do find them and I, I've had experiences in my life which are literally unbelievable I have an, a, a twin brother and we are identical twins and we've had we've shared psychic experiences which are really very spooky and very strange and where that comes from who knows do you have an example that you can it, share or well very very briefly because yeah. it is a long story but it, it involved a dinner party I went to when I was living a hundred miles away from him, at which the host threw a shrunken skull, shrunken head into my lap as a joke. So it was only about this size because mm. the skull had been removed. And um, I rang my brother who knew something about these subjects. He was in sort of spirituality and occasionally the occult. And he said, when it landed in your lap, did you feel anything? And I said, well, I sort of felt a feeling of sort of help. And he said, well, it's a woman and she's going to communicate with you in your dreams. And to cut a long story short, she did over a period of time through symbolism, extraordinarily powerful symbols. I'll, I'll give you one very quick example. One, one On one of, one of these dreams, not the first one, I was walking down a path in the country and there was a field on the left of the hedge and it was all muddy and there was a covey, a, a flock of partridges in it, about 20 partridges, and they all flew away when they saw me. But one was left behind and it was bright silver and it was stuck in the mud because its feet were stuck. And silver is the colour of the astral world and represents the spirit. And the interpretation of the dream was that the others were normal partridges which were able to fly away. This bird was stuck because it, its owner had been murdered and was, and was still attached to this shrunken head. And I had a series of powerful dreams like that. And eventually the situation was resolved, I'm glad to say. Wow. Um, so what does, like, how does that have an impact on your idea of uh like do you do you call it god do you call it the universe the source energy uh what are you, what would you say are your spiritual beliefs like what would you identify as i believe there's a lot going on that we are not aware of and that conventional wisdom is our best attempt to explain it and it only gets so far I think there are an awful lot of things which cannot be explained by science. I, I remember Attenborough did an interview the other day and he was asked whether he believed in God or whether he was pure evolutionist. And his 
answer, which I thought was brilliant, was he said he could sit next to a, a young boy in Africa who is blind and he can explain the science of how that child drank some water which had a certain worm in it and the worm migrated from his gut into his eyes and blind him and he, and he understands that. But at the same time, and so that's the scientific explanation, at the same time he could then walk to a termite mound and he could cut the top off that termite mound and he could see thousands of termites going about their everyday work and he could look down at them and understand what they were trying to achieve and they would have no idea he was watching them and they would have no idea what he was. And in that sort of analogy, he is sort of like God and, and they are like us. So I see no reason why there wouldn't be a, an intelligence or a series of intelligences way above us. And there are certainly many ways in which people have accessed what appears to be other intelligences. So I don't worship in a conventional way, but I'm aware and I'm respectful. And I'm, I'm always digging, I'm always trying to find out more, and I'm always com comparing uh, different religions or spiritualities. I, I find shamanism one of the more interesting ones. But I don't believe we have the tools or the mental capacity to actually understand what's going on, just like the termite cannot understand what David Attenborough is. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, I also, I mean, I don't um, subscribe to any... Uh, any religion uh, but I would consider myself a spiritual person in the sense that um, I'm very curious and I'm very aware that there is something that we yes that we don't quite know exactly what it is but we can all feel it and there, there's an awful lot going on you can, can have experiences yeah which really make you think differently about life and death mm -hmm. and if you start questioning where they come from you might as well question reality and everything else as well but i've have had experiences which are so real and so powerful that one out of respect for them sort of feels well there is more going on than we we realize absolutely and so then do you feel that um as humans, uh, we have a duty um, that to take care of the earth that we're on. Um, I guess sort of where I'm coming from this question is because with um, uh, religion, it um, tries to teach us um, or to try to give us some kind of moral compass. Mm. Um, like with in in Christianity with the Ten Commandments and all that kind of thing. And where do you think that comes from? And then because we are connected and we are part of this world, but we're also uh, stewards of the world as well of like of this planet. Um, but yet we seem to be making a complete mess it's we do don't we like and i'm like what the hell is going on we're like the only species who's like on a suicide mission like whenever yep. people talk oh we need to save the planet it's like well not really the planet's going to be just fine as humans are going to die mm. off so which may be a good thing i mean <laughs> yeah. i I, th I am incredibly concerned about the future i have children in their 20s and I am very, very worried about the world because 
I think when things go wrong, they go wrong quickly and catastrophically. I don't think it's going to be a case of things getting 1% worse a year for 100 years. I think there'll be a tipping point when everything mm. will collapse. Whether we can turn that around, I don't know. But I think what humans have done to the planet is off the scale, appalling. And I think their resistance to change is the same and that it's such a complicated argument there's so much going on if we were someone's idea of an experiment i think they probably said we won't do that one again <laughs> yeah absolutely. if it's pure chance <laughs> that we ended up as we are that was very yeah. unfortunate but i a hundred years from now i think there will be there will still be humans unless some appalling bug wipes us all out or wipes out everything but i think probably it's it, we're going to find things changing very very dramatically mm. but it's just so strange like why are why are humans like that it's i feel like um you know with what we've achieved as a human race i always feel like the main question for humans has been how can i have my cake and and eat it so it's the I feel like humans almost want to find a way how they can cheat uh, nah. mm. nature. It's like, how can I have all of the good things yep. and take away <clears throat> the bad things without realizing what well, actually everything needs to function in uh, balance and harmony. So just um, as an example, like the use of uh, pesticides, it's like, okay, we want to keep all of the crops but yet we want to kill all of the bad bugs but then it's like okay but when you use all these pesticides you're actually killing good bugs you are uh you are destroying the soil as well i think um i can't remember where i read somewhere but the the fact that like bees are in such serious decline and i think they were classified as like one of the most important uh, species on the planet correct yes and it's like you know i think one of the huge problems is short-term term commercial gain stroke capitalism and the power of large corporations is so colossal that they're really allowed to do and they have been allowed to do exactly what they want in search of profit and even when pressure groups begin to say you're killing off the bees and without the bees we won't have food in a year it it takes time people turn a blind eye and just carry on doing what they've been doing a lot of people it's just ignorance most of us had no idea of how dangerous plastic would be say 10 years ago there were probably a few scientists out there who were aware of it i became aware of it probably seven or eight years ago and that most people are so busy with their lives paying their mortgage or not getting fired or keeping their marriage going or, or whatever that they don't have time to think about any of this and they surround themselves their tribe are like-minded people who don't who don't raise the same questions either and this is one of the problems with humanity and society and so we're all just bar barreling along as we have done for hundreds or even thousands of years but it's all going to come home to roost and and very soon and then can we turn it around in time who knows yeah but um you have some ideas or you have a uh a, you have a vision of what could potentially help 
humanity or um yeah I'll, I'll let you talk about that well this idea started about 20 years ago i just got divorced i'd moved back to london and i joined a gym because i wanted to get fit lose weight and i noticed that this gym had um some complementary therapy rooms which people could hire out and there was sort of uh, acupuncture and homeopathy and osteopathy etc and I liked from that point the idea of a sort of holistic approach to the well-being of the people who use this gym so they could take exercise have a sauna and then go and see a therapist and from that idea I began to develop the concept of what would happen if not just individuals but large numbers of people addressed and improved their well-being and I came at it from the, going back to what you said before, the mind, body and spirit perspective. I said, okay, we're comprised of a mind, body and spirit. Some of us look after one of the three. Some people don't look after any of the three. Occasionally someone looks after two out of three. You might even meet someone who looks after three out of three. But it struck me that as people improve their well-being, and there is a little bit of research out there now along these lines, and feel happier they think and they behave differently. And I think this really came home to me a number of years ago when I went outside to put my rubbish away and there was the bin for the uh, recyclable stuff and the other bin for the non-recyclable. And I had something, it was the top of a plastic bottle and I didn't know which bin it went in, and I got in a real huff. Why doesn't the council have clear signs? Why doesn't someone tell me? I haven't got time to work this out. And then I can't remember what I did with it, but I went inside, and I was under a lot of stress at the time, and poor little precious me was far too self-important to have the time to worry about the environment and where this plastic bottle cup went. A few months later, things were going much better for me, and I went out there, and the dilemma reoccurred where do I do this thing that time I quite happily went home did some research made a phone call or two and I found out and the point I'm making is when we are happier more relaxed our sense of well-being is elevated we're more tolerant we're more reasonable we have more time to sort things out so it's my belief that when people's well-being is improved it affects a huge range of their attitudes and behavior from things like racism, xenophobia, religious intolerance, how they treat, say, misogyny, homophobia, how they treat the environment. All these things are interconnected. And when people start improving how they think and behave in all those areas, you will then see a very great effect over time on politics, on society, and on economics. And when I was working fairly full-time in this area, I, I talk about what I call the political social economic model. And the way that this country and, and every developed country operates is the politicians look at the amount of money they need to run the economy. So they say, we need this amount of money for health, this amount for transport, this amount for education, etc., etc. They then look at the economy and they say, how much is the economy, GDP, going to grow this year? They then say, how much do we dare tax people so that they're not going to, so they'll vote for us again? And then they throw the money at all these areas. 
and then they run out of money and then they go on the international money markets and borrow more and then they hope they get re-elected. And, and this cycle goes on and on and on and on. And the pyramid is that you have money, the e economy at the top of this pyramid. This is what everyone focuses on. My idea, which is being picked up more and more these days, is that if you actually put well-being up there with money, over time, people's well-being would mean you need less money to run the system. If 10% of the population in the first five years of this idea actually got hold of their health and really improved their physical health, that would have a great impact on the health service. But it was all also, if it's a well-being improvement, it's also going to affect things like productivity, how people treat each other in society. There will be spin-off effects with the police, the judiciary, the prison service. There'll be less fraud, less crime, more morality, and more societal cohesion. So I think if you could actually put in place mechanisms which from top down, which encourage and incentivize people to improve their well-being and bottom up people were doing it anyway because they want to, they understand their sense of social responsibility, which you mentioned earlier, I think over time you could actually begin to get large numbers of people making a difference. And eventually people will realize it's actually not all about money. Happiness, well-being, it isn't how rich I am. There are other things in life which matter. And when you actually realize that you can be happy and satisfied with what you have, and it doesn't matter that this person has more than you, you'll almost certainly be happier than that person. Hmm, that is interesting. Um, however, um, one slight challenge uh, to that idea is that, um, would you not say that certainly in the developed world, um, our well-being has considerably improved, certainly from a physical standpoint, um, in the sense of the the advancement of um, medicine, the access to it. Uh, we live very comfortable lives. Like just when I think about my grandfather, when he used to tell me about his life when he was younger like he actually knew what it meant to feel hungry like I can't ever say that that I know what it's like to be actually hungry because you know food is so easily available to me so in a way as a collective um, things have improved a lot in terms of our lives being very comfortable we have all these time-saving uh, devices as well like my grandparents didn't have uh, washing machines for example they had to wash everything by hand but yeah when my grandfather spoke about those hard times there was a certain contentment in that as well because they were they were all in that same situation they they, they grouped together they they helped each other um so, yeah, I'm just wondering. I think it would be yeah. um, pretentious of me to say this, so I will say it. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if your grandparents weren't happier, had a better sense of well-being than people do today. Okay, mm. there are better procedures for certain illnesses. You can have operations and people are living longer, although in some developed countries now we've peaked and people are not living any longer. 
But yes, you can keep people going longer. And as you say, things like feeling hungry for you or I has never perhaps happened. But there are all sorts of other ways in which we are suffering, I think is almost off the scale, which maybe your grandparents didn't experience. For example, stress. This world we live in, there is so much stress because it's coming at us from so many different angles. And I wonder whether they experience that sort of stress. More recently, we've seen the upsurgences in narcissism, uh, fueled mainly by social media, which is another way which people have been dr become more insular and that then it's no longer about society and helping others. It's me, 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 look at me, look at me. And I prefer the older world. I, I would prefer to live to the age of 70 and feel an in, I'm doing my part, an integrated part of society. I don't need a new car every year. I, I have huge enjoyment out of keeping things going for as long as possible rather than live to 90 because the doctors can keep me going that long if there isn't some quality to that life. And remember that with the advances of medicine, we're, of course, fueling the problem because there are more and more people surviving, more and more people on planet Earth creating pollution, needing feeding, whatever it is, using up the resources which are depleting at an alarming rate. So I think a lot of what we think is well-being isn't. And some of that is what you referred to, the washing machine. A lot of commerce has been directed at the labor-saving device, things to make our life easier. So we have an oven, a washing machine, a fridge, a, an iron, etc., etc. And they're all conveniences. But apart from the energy they all use, which is another subject, I, I question whether our, our well-being is really better than it was maybe pre-industrial times. Although, of course, there, there was huge suffering. It was just different different suffering. There, there was more uncontrolled, untreatable disease. Um, so I think there, there is a combination of things going on here. But I'm certainly not happy where we are at the moment. Yeah, I think um, maybe the well-being, because I'm thinking about what, what is actually well-being, because it is such a um, common uh buzzword, buzzword days, right yes. now and uh i think it's been uh commoditized as well i think a lot of um companies jump on that bandwagon because it is such a trend now and mm. it's like okay if you wear these trousers or you wear this like crystal or if you go to this retreat like you're looking after your well-being and um i think what you touched upon i think not 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 during the interview but uh before like some people can go to all these retreats read all the personal uh development books you know go into all sorts of uh mm. yoga poses but they're still an <laughs> asshole mm. you know um but so they, they may themselves yeah. <laughs> feel their well-being is elevated and then maybe they will behave differently I, d mm. I don't know because I, I haven't interviewed people in that position, but there yeah. are plenty of, of them. And, and the problem is it's been commercialized yeah. and people think here's a way to make a buck. Yeah. And they all become new, new age or, or well-being gurus, whatever it is. There are a lot of phonies out there. I, even in, in my gym, I, I used to box and so I still hit a punch bag to keep fit. 
And I see people coming in in, in brand new 150 pound boxing boots and satin boxing shorts. And they spend five minutes putting on their wraps and they put on these amazing new boxing gloves. And I'm thinking, wow, look, this guy looks like he knows what he's doing. And then they haven't got a clue. But they're getting something out of the, the universe they're in in that moment. It's making them feel good. The fact that they look ridiculous and have no idea how to box is neither here nor there. But yes, the commercialism, you know, the spin-off of capitalism, is very unfortunate. And I think, I hope that over time, people will see that for what it is. But if it helps make more people alert... There, there may be some good that comes from it. Yeah, because I think it, um, with a, a conversation of well-being, um, there's also uh, what I hear quite a lot about is self-care and self-love. And uh, while I understand it's important, but I think sometimes there is a very grey line between self-care and selfishness. Mm, absolutely. And um, at least what I see with with some of the personal development um, community is, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I've not, seen yeah. this myself. I, I remember. <laughs> Yeah, I, I approached uh, quite a few years ago a woman who was considered to be the number one life coach in the country in the fairly early days of life coaching. And she was described in glowing terms on the back of her book. I remember she was described as the queen bee of life coaching. So I wanted to talk to her about well-being because I've been in this area for about 20 years as in the early days. And I rang her. And I, she said, oh, I'd love to talk to you about uh, your well-being and how it can fit in with what I'm doing. Yes, but I'm very busy for the next year, so I can't possibly see you for a year. So I said, well, it's very nice of you to explain that to me, and I'm sorry, but I can't wait a year. There are other people I will go and talk to in, in this field you know, who may want to get on board with this. And she said, if you talk to anyone else about this, I will never speak to you again. You spoke to me, you're to wait a year for me. And I, I was so astonished by her self-centeredness and her sense of importance that uh, I declined her kind invitation to wait a year before I spoke to her about it. But yes, there is a, uh, oh, that is a good point. And we, we have this growth in looking after ourselves and, and it's tipping further and further in the unhealthy direction of too much self-love and narcissism the psychiatrists will tell us it's healthy to have a degree of self-love and narcissism mm -hmm. otherwise we won't look after ourselves and we won't present ourselves well and get the best out of life but i do think more and more people are going a little far and as i mentioned briefly before you just have to look at say go on facebook and look at people who do yoga and every day they change their profile picture to show the world that they've learned a new pose and and i find that extremely hard work um yeah but i think um so when you said about um it's um it's normal that we all have um a certain degree of self-love or certain mm. traits but i think that's just healthy self-esteem i think uh, and i think a a part of healthy self-esteem is not just how you treat yourself, but how you treat other people. It certainly should be. It absolutely should be. And what, one of the lessons I've learned in life is I, I used to, like most people, be interested in things, pursue them and get enjoyment from them. 
I have found over the years I get probably more enjoyment from helping other people than I do from all these other hobbies and things which I used to pursue. Now, there's there was a I think he was Belgian social anthropologist called Maus, M-A-U-S-S, not M-O-U-S-E. And he wrote a definitive book um, on the gift. And I, re- I remember he said in this book that there is no such thing as a gift which is freely given. You always actually want what he calls a reciprocity, something back in return. So even when I help that little old lady with her laundry or whatever it is, I'm actually doing it because I want what comes back to me is the feeling good for having done that. But I can live with that. Yeah, it's better that way than I not think, at all. I think um, uh, reciprocity is completely uh, n- normal, and I think all uh, I think that relationships and connections should be b- balanced in that way. Otherwise, it's just very one-sided. And I think people who believe in flows of energy will describe how you yeah. help this person that person can't actually help you but then this person over here will help you and then that and so it's it's we we can never anticipate mm. how this energy flows between us but if you're closed you you won't receive anything if you're giving all the time things do come back to you yeah but i think some um what i've learned <laughs> the hard way though is yeah, it's important to give, but it's important to have healthy boundaries with that, mm, with giving. No, I think that's true as well. So, yeah, there's a very, uh, yeah, this whole topic is, is very grey. There isn't like one clear cut, like, oh, you know, like with self-love, self-esteem, mm. helping others, looking after yourself. But I th- I believe what is truly good for you is for the greater good. So if something is good for you, but it's not for the greater good, then eventually it's going to come back to you in some way. Right. It won't be good for you. If, does that make sense? I'm trying to think. Uh, give me an example if you can. I'm trying to think of an example. Right. Um, well, maybe let's go back to the uh, pesticide example. Hmm. So in the short term, it might be good for you. Okay, you get these like loads of crops and you can have loads of food but then as time goes by this food is going to make you feel ill yes that's because you'll have the side effects so in that moment in the short term it was good for you but in the long term for the greater good it was we pay a terrible price yeah and you know like we said with the uh with the dying off of bees and um other insects so that's what i think is like almost a um guiding uh post is whether you feel like okay um is if this is good for me how does this impact the the greater world Mm. around me and people around me uh so i believe in win 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 situations so I think that's how the world works. And I think um, historically, I don't know how much the companies hide what they actually know, but quite often we've embarked on journeys, say, to increase agricultural production. And the companies didn't actually know the problems they were causing down the road. No doubt in other, on other occasions they did. But it certainly does come back to clobber us. I I have a friend who farms in the Midlands 
and he he's comfortably off person and he set aside his farm so that it is only organic because he wants the land to be passed on to his children and it doesn't produce the yields it would do if you're spraying it with x y and z and he says it it doesn't it barely breaks even i don't mind but i what i don't want to do is destroy this body of soil just for the short-term gain and i have respect for him for that approach to his farming absolutely uh because people don't realize like when they buy um food that's been uh produced in that way with loads of uh pesticides loads of um artificial uh fertilizer think oh great this is cheap (laughs) this is like fantastic but there is there's no such thing as cheap because if you're not paying for it now you're paying for it later good point so you know like i have tried to grow some of my own things in my in my back uh garden and um I've seen how hard it is and how much work and it takes the as well. And the slugs arrive and eat it all just No, for they you. haven't. No, <laughs> no, that um, was fine. Um, and, but what I, what I want, the point I want to make is so when I go to a shop and I see how cheap things are, like, because most people, like, when they go to the shops, they think, oh, they complain, oh, this is so expensive. Look at the price of these tomatoes or look at the price of this. But when I look at it, I'm like, how is this? How is it possible to make <laughs> mm. this in such a cheap way? Because when you you yourself, obviously, like the process of doing it at home is completely different when doing it in a commercial farm. But still, you see that process of planting the seed, of uh, watching that plant grow and the time and the and the care it takes for it to go from seed to to crop is just like Mm. it's amazing. Mm. I think it's something that we all should do and just to see that process so we can we can um, appreciate the food that we have even more. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We actually put in an allotment behind the block of flats I live in the other day. And uh, we have about 12, I think, little allotments there. There are 40 flats in the block. And it's outside my window. So I I watch constantly as this plant grows and that plant grows and then it's harvested and the next one comes along. And it is interesting to see developing your thought about the cost we pay and and the money we save when we go to the supermarket, I'm very mindful returning to the oceans of the fish we shouldn't be eating. We we assume fish is a cheap source of protein and it feeds X billion people on planet Earth. I watched a video a couple of nights ago in which this guy identified the five fish in the world which we should not be eating i may not remember all five of them now but one of them was called a king mackerel which is a member of the mackerel family but it grows very large any shark swordfish tuna and any farmed fish and the toxic toxicity in these fish now besides the fact that 90 percent 90 percent of the large ocean predators have gone Wow. We we need to avoid them. There's a whale in the um, Arctic Circle called the beluga whale. It's a white whale, and it and it's very unique because it, it its um, skull structure allows it to mimic facial expressions of human beings. So it's a very expressive looking whale. 
there is so much pollution in the Arctic Circle that it's used as what's called a sentinel species. They catch a beluga whale and they count the number of tumours it has. They've all got tumours and it, they just say oh, things are getting worse then that they're now averaging seven tumours per whale or whatever it is. And it's not just the Arctic Circle, because as you can imagine, the oceans are all interconnected by currents and everything is being washed around all the oceans. And I'm not sure what the latest figures are, but the percentage of things living in the oceans with microplastics in them is off the scale. Well, it isn't off scale, but it's, it's high up the scale. And you're full of it now as well. We all are. We're probably lucky that plastic may not be quite such as bad as bad for us as we assume it would be, because we're we're full of it. Yeah. So, what can we do just as in as individuals? This um, problem just seems <laughs> so huge. It's like it where where on earth do you start? Um, returning to David Attenborough, uh, who just did an interview. I think it was on Channel Four. And he was asked this question, or he was asked, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Do you think we can turn the situation around? And on the subject of global warming, he said, no, we can't turn it around. But we might be able to get it under control and reduce the rate of acceleration. And it may be that we can get to a level where we can manage and survive. And he said he thinks there will be enough food, you know, for the foreseeable future it's just we won't be eating what we want to eat and i thought that was quite an ominous statement he's probably referring to locusts and ants and things rather than fillet steaks and prawns but i i believe and i hope i mean one of the biggest problems for me is the size of the planet's population that's where the pressure comes from i think the population has to come down dramatically over a period of decades to reduce the pressure i think there needs to be a massive change in the way the the world is run i'm talking the politics and i'm talking about economics capitalism i think that the voice of the majority needs to be heard the current model and democracy do not work if you and one way not the only way but one way you might begin to have an effect is through a huge number of people addressing and improving their well-being. And and when I say well-being, and I talk about mind, body, and spirit, uh, body is obviously physical health, spirit. We've touched upon spirituality, which could be expressed in a formal religion. But for mind, I talk about not just mental health, but education and it all comes down to education. And if people's education had taught them certain fundamentals, which they lack now, I think we wouldn't be in this situation. And I think that if and when you had a huge body of people who all believed in this approach to life, you could then exert pressure, and very real pressure, on corporations and on government. Because at the moment, the the corporations control government, and we do what our government says. But if you had a significant number of people who could affect government by saying, we're not going to vote for you, sorry, unless you do this, that, and the next thing, and they say to the corporations, we're not buying your products because we don't like what you're doing, that is one way in which you might be able to start turning things around. Yeah, well, uh, it's like, I think it was 
Gandhi who said you have to be the change you want to see. Mm. So I, I do. Um, obviously, we need to pressure uh, corporations, governments. But if we don't change ourselves first, it's going to be very difficult to inspire others to to change as well. Yeah, I think absolutely. you need to walk your talk. And um, uh, yeah, what was I going to say um, about? Yeah, it was <coughs> about well-being. Um, when you talked about the mind and education and I think with spirituality and what um, the consistent theme is here about everything being connected I think when you have a spiritual practice and you become aware of actually uh, that everything is connected and you truly understand that that will have an impact Mm. on how you behave because you know that um how you treat someone else or how you treat the planet will come back to you and i think that is a spirituality in itself just the word respect may sum it up absolutely and i i am that rather odd person who sees a spider and i'll spend an hour catching it in a glass and releasing it out of the window even when i found a rather horrible and scary one the other day i still didn't kill it i'm not quite so kind with mosquitoes but that's another story yeah uh, so yeah, just coming to um, wrap this up now, and um, I wanted to ask you what have been the most important uh, practices for you that have um, helped you to overcome challenges, or how you um, how you go through your creative process, um, and how you have achieved uh, any successes. I think what I do and what I force myself to do is to set myself goals periodically and I'm quite good at actually sticking to them. Not always, but for example, when we first met nearly five years ago, the goal I set myself then was public speaking because I couldn't public speak. And I thought it's a huge gap in my very limited skill set, which I need to fill. And... About two years after that, I decided I needed to get fit again. I used to be fit when I was young, and I'd put on about stone and a half, and I joined a gym. So every year or two, something else comes along. Writing fulfilled that need at one point. Art has fulfilled that need. At the moment, I play chess to a reasonably high standard, normally every day, not every day, but several times a week, just keep the brain ticking over. And I'm always questioning things. I'm always looking at things and seeing if the way they're done is the best way for them to be done. I've had success in life in areas in which I've been very deeply involved in something in which I've said, "Mm, but what if you borrowed from a, a, a different discipline and could apply a technique to that, would it work? And when it worked, it would give you a huge advantage. And so I'm always looking at the way things are done and questioning if that's the only way they can be done. And I've done, I've been involved in areas like product design, which is very, very much doing that. So I I always question things. And my whole approach, as, as I said earlier, to this well-being thing sort of came by chance when I visited that gym, but it triggered a series of thoughts. So at the moment, I would say the way I live my life is I eat healthily, I take a lot of exercise, 
I'm spiritually very respectful of what's going on around me and how I treat others and animals as well. And I keep my mind busy because as you get older, the, the old mind tends to fizzle out. So I, I keep working it as much as I can. W one thing I'll, I'll quickly add, which we haven't mentioned, is what is our role here on planet Earth? I have a theory which may be original to me, I don't know, which is that one of our roles is to allow animals to experience love because in the harsh world that 99.9% .9 of animals live in, it's kill or be killed, it's being hunted by a lion, it's starving to death, etc., etc. But when we domesticate animals and bring them into our lives, dogs and cats being the obvious example, you suddenly see these animals experiencing love but when you see them in the outside world, in the, in the raw, naked environment, they hardly experience that at all. So I think human beings actually have the potential and the opportunity to allow the animal kingdom, in many, many examples, to experience love. And you can see scuba divers feeding moray eels or sharks and stroking them. Now, we don't know what is going through the mind of that shark or the eel at that particular moment. And it's very anthropomorphic to suggest that they are feeling love. But they certainly behave the same way I do. They lie on their backs and they roll around and they look extremely contented. So I've always felt we're privileged in that we could increase the amount of love that the animal kingdom experiences. And what do we do? The exact opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I haven't heard that idea before. That's really interesting. But yeah, as you say, we're doing the complete opposite in, in most cases. Um, so just with my final question then, um, if you can tell me, uh, what do you value most and how do you put it into practice? I think over the years I've come to value the idea that you're not out to impress anyone else. You have to uh, be comfortable in your own skin. And when you realize that, it does make life much easier. How do I put it into practice? I'm, I try and stay aware. I try and be very non-judgmental. I'm not perfect. I, I make mistakes. But I, I need to walk through life doing as little damage as I can and helping others as much as I can. And I think that is basically what guides me. And, and I haven't always been this person. One learns over time, but I think that's where I am now and I hope to be in future. Mm, well, that just actually leads me to, because you said you weren't always this person. What was the catalyst for change? I would just think the setbacks, which most people go through in life, a it didn't all happen at once, but uh, my parents divorced when I was three, so I had very little father influence, and then my father died when I was very small. Violent stepfather followed who beat me up periodically. Setbacks in life such as divorce, not seeing as much of my children as I would like to, realizing that most people in business are liars and cheats and you can't trust anyone. I think just things over a period of time built up and made me question why things are as they are and is there a different way of doing it. And most of the things I, pr I just described are to do with well-being. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, my father was a chain smoker, so that 
you could argue is what, why he died. He had a heart attack, and that is linked to smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, alcohol, violent stepfather, divorce, maybe not. But all of these things, I, I think if there's more well-being around, people would probably approach life very differently and from a much earlier age. And, and uh, I believe well-being and the components of it and back to my political, social, economic model, the way the world works, should all be taught and considered and thought about by young people at school. They shouldn't just be taught history, geography, and maths and thrown out into the world and expected to make sense of it. They need to understand how everything fits together and their part in this world. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I'll just add a little sneaky um, extra question at the end, and that's... um, which value do you think that we all need to practice more? Am I limited to only one? Okay, you can you can choose a few, but yeah. Well, what, I, what I would think there are many, there are many. I mean, there's honesty, there's loyalty, there's commitment, there's love, there's selflessness. I think, but I think all of these things flow from a sense of improved well-being. So, what I would, how I would answer that is maybe I would say the value is improve our well-being because of all the things that flow from it. Mm, Fantastic! Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. And um, if someone would like to find out a bit more about you, uh, where can they find you? I think they would find the way my mind works if they wanted to read the book. They can always send me a friend request on Facebook. I am rebuilding my website so quite soon, but it will be a public speaking focused website. Mm -hmm. But I I am out there. I can be tracked down through social media. And where can we find your book? It's available on Amazon. Would you like to just hold it up again so they can see if they are interested in it? There we go. Ben's book, Something in the Water. And I'll provide a uh, link as well. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. Click on it. Um, Great. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Susanna. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks. So, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please subscribe so um, you can you can stay uh, you can stay up to date uh, with any new episodes released. And if you enjoyed this interview and you think someone else will too, uh, please share it. Uh, Until next time. Thank you very much.